This is a 980 CKNW podcast. You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here. I've got fellow nerds John Beeler and AJ Vickery with me today. Thanks for coming in. So there's a lot to talk about. Uh, later on, we'll have Ted Crozonos on uh, talking about new car technology, especially when it comes to like the infotainment systems, where that's all going is pretty cool stuff. Uh, finally, they've gotten cool. <laughs> Do you remember like in the past years, you had to go and buy your car stereo and there's like 50 million different types and they or were super expensive. Or you were stuck with whatever the manufacturer was yeah. going to give you and it was crap. Yes. Well, those days are over. And have you ever dreamed of starting your own YouTube channel and becoming a star? I have. Have you? Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do have a YouTube channel. Uh, we're going to be talking with uh, a guy named Chuck. Chuck Hellebuck. Chuck Hellebuck. And uh, he has a YouTube channel. He's 58 years old. And I thought it was important to have him on to tell us his experience on getting his channel going and what things worked and what didn't. So no matter how old you are or what your passions are, there's a YouTube channel waiting for you. And so we'll give you some tips on uh, how to get that up and going and hopefully be successful. Let's talk about some of the uh, the news out there, guys. Uh, this is interesting. Uh, podcasting's getting huge. Like, like enormous. Enormous. Like companies are buying up podcasting. Uh, services and, and podcasts like Spotify is spending hundreds of millions of dollars on it, for example. Uh, well, some staple stores in Boston are now putting podcast studios in. Which is really cool. Yeah. I mean, we've got our own podcast studio here now yes. as well, which is uh, nice. We unfortunately built it next to the washrooms <laughs> and installed, uh, I don't know what kind of jet engine those toilets are using, but uh, we're working on that. So if you hear jets, we're not on a plane. No. <laughs> Uh, but it's interesting how some of these uh, retailers are trying to change their their format. Uh, up here in Canada, Staples, they're redoing their stores in, in major areas. Um, you know, retail space is shrinking. More and more people are shopping online. But people still want to go to stores. Uh, so what some of the Staples stores are doing now is they're converting half of them into uh, workspaces. You know, like WeWork. Yeah. So you can actually go and uh, work there, like rent a desk or an office. Uh, and they have uh, regular seminars going on throughout the day as well. Uh, so you can actually hold your own seminar and get people to come on down or you can go and learn about digital marketing or sleep or, you know, there's like a thousand different topics that they have going. Well, you know, I think this idea of the podcast studio, uh, you know, in a staple store is actually quite brilliant because the fact is, is that, uh, and we may not really see it the same way, but it's a super big barrier to entry trying to figure out how to get your microphones, how to sort of record all that. Uh, and then ultimately how to sort of publish it out to the different stations. But you can take a huge chunk of that um, unknown away by being able to just go into a studio that has proper sound, proper mics, you know, and let you do that. So I think this could be a real big uh, win for them. I think so. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the right direction, definitely, right? Because, uh, you know, retail space, that's tough. Like there's a lot of retailers going out of business now because it's so competitive and, you know, the online world is killing it. I bet they'll also start selling podcast or beginner bundles of the tech which they should because it's yeah. not that hard no but it's no. it's a little daunting sometimes trying but to figure it out right? especially you don't know anything about this stuff at all yeah, yeah it can definitely be gives daunting. me an idea for an upcoming show <laughs> okay yeah. i was gonna say they could have went with like a 3d printer uh, room you know and rented that out well, and, and some places do, not Staples specifically, but that's kind of what the pivoting that's happened in the in public libraries. Mm-hmm. They've turned into sort of mini maker spaces to use up that space to get people in there to look, you know, read the books on how to do the stuff, but then actually have some hands-on activities and things like that they can do. Um, even the Vancouver Public Library has a podcasting studio. Mm-hmm. 
That's true. Yeah. So you want to check that out. Uh, another quick story here. Ring adds mandatory two-factor authentication to its app. So Ring uh, doorbells and cameras, uh, pretty big business now, owned by Amazon. So uh, one of the big players out there. There have been some challenges, though, with it because people have been able to hack in and check out what's happening on your front lawn. Uh, so now they are uh, adding mandatory two-factor authentication to the app. So it's going to make it harder for people to hack it. Yeah, well, and the big problem that they've experienced before, it wasn't that they were hacked, Ring itself. It was that their customers had really bad password practices yeah. in place. They had the same username, password that was across multiple places and sites. So at least now, every time you want to log into the app, it's going to force you to provide a challenge code that'll be either texted or emailed to you uh, before you can log in. So that should stop any hacker attempts from getting in. I have Ring. I, I love it. Yeah, like me it's, too. Um, really helped like in my neighborhood uh we constantly have these punks coming in trying to get into our cars so now i can get alerts or stealing your tesla charger or stealing my tesla charger yeah uh now i can chase them away in my underwear (laughs) like a crazy man (laughs) i've been phoning the police and providing the footage i don't think they care no no that was actually something i read too that it's a good deterrent yeah but at the end of the day that footage doesn't really do much unless they have a really clear image of the act in progress. Yeah, at least I can see grainy footage of the guy in the hoodie trying to break into my car. Right. Okay, we're going to have to take a break. When we come back, uh, a lot more tech to talk here. We're going to teach people how to be YouTube stars, no matter how old you are. You're listening to Get Connected. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike and John here. Uh, Want to talk car cars now, car technology. Uh, obviously, uh, a huge component of uh, all new vehicles, uh, especially like the infotainment systems and autonomous driving. Well, we have our uh, car tech expert, Ted Krotsonos. He is uh, live with us from Toronto. How you doing, Ted? You doing, guys? Very well. A little frigid over here, but I'm good. Oh, yeah, we're in our shorts. We're swimming already here in Vancouver. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. Yeah. That's what I tell people back east all the time. It is actually sunny out today. It is. It is not bad. So, Ted, uh, you were recently in the Toronto uh, Auto Show. Yeah, yeah, it was media day yesterday. Media yeah. day. Uh, how much is technology playing a part in uh, vehicles now and, and purchasing decisions of, of vehicles? I think it's a big factor. And so slowly but surely at this particular show, they've been showing more of the tech that's in the car. Uh, not as much, obviously, as CES. CES is a show where obviously we see a lot of what's coming in the years to come, not necessarily what's coming in that year alone. Uh, but in the Canadian show, I remember it used to be hard to see anything that was infotainment related, but now that's, it's become a big part of the value proposition in selling it to consumers. And so you'll see more of it. There's going to be some demo stations. I mean, Ford is showing off its next gen sync platform, which will launch late in uh, 2020. And we had other, you know, uh, there was uh, GM that was showing some of theirs, uh, some, some new stuff that they're coming out with, um, so, in fact, actually, GM with the Trailblazer will have wireless CarPlay and wireless Android Auto, uh, which is a bit unusual for an automaker. Not a lot of automakers have done that. BMW is really the main one that has offered that. Um, so, GM has chosen the Trailblazer of all the brands and all the cars. They chose the Trailblazer to do that. Uh, just like all, that's what all the millennials are buying, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's just like you know, just it's like Chrysler. Yeah. Chrysler chose a minivan to you know to showcase its newest infotainment system. So it kind of interesting choices, but it just goes to show you that these vehicles are, like any vehicle can show 
what uh, what the automakers want to do as far as infotainment goes. So they're not doing it always on the luxury side and then trickling it down. What do you think about the wireless CarPlay and Android Auto? I always think it's like, well, why would you want that? Because you're using it for navigation. Unless you have a wireless charger built into the car, which not all of them do, you still have to charge your phone while you're navigating, which tends to kill your battery much faster. But you actually answered your own question because it is. It's the wireless charging. Yeah. That's the reason why. See, one of the one of the redundancies in having wireless charging in the car was that if you were going to use either of those platforms, you had to plug in with a cable. So why would you plug in a cable? You see what I'm saying? Like It didn't make sense. But now you can use the wireless charger and you're still connected to either of those platforms. BMW, again, having supported wireless CarPlay because they don't not they didn't support Android Auto, uh, they had that. I mean, it was perfect. You put your phone on the wireless charger and you had full access to the platform. It was wonderful. So having experienced it, having tested it myself, it is great. And I, I know people are going to love it too. So the other thing too, of course, is that if you don't have a wireless charger in the car, you can always get one. So you can get a vent mount or something else, put, you know, stick it on there, put your phone in there, and again, you don't have to plug in with a cable. I always wonder, though, about those little cubby holes that they have the wireless charging pad into, because they're always like tucked in, which is great. What if you get a Samsung Ultra? Oh, like a giant a phone. A giant phone. Yeah. It's not going to fit in that little spot. Yeah, <laughs> so mo- most of the cradles and pads are big enough to handle phones like that. So the, the automakers were at least smart enough uh, and astute enough to recognize, okay, phones are probably going to get a little bit bigger. I mean, screen size have gotten bigger, but I don't know about the screen. I don't know about the, the phone size necessarily. For the most part, those have actually kind of stayed steady. So the automakers recognized this, and, uh, and, uh, and they made the pads big enough to handle most phones. So for the most part, I don't think that's going to be an issue. It's interesting with technology. You know, we're talking about infotainment systems, and you know, most of the new cars now they've got like you know big touchscreen uh, display, and they're you know able to use uh, Apple CarPlay or Android Auto. Uh, so you know that pretty well covers all phones out in the marketplace. Uh, uh, but just the wireless charging you're talking about as well. I saw like recently this week, and I forget which Toyota model. Maybe it was a Corolla. Like their lead uh, sales pitch on it was that it's got wireless charging for your cell <laughs> yeah. phone. Nothing yeah. about the car, you know, the the motor, the lights, or, or, or anything. It's like, it's got wireless charging. And that was like, well, the need. like, how important is it, Ted? Well, that's the thing. I mean, like, what else can you say about a Corolla? Uh, <laughs> you know, like, I, I mean, it's good on gas, great. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, aside from that, under the hood, there's not a compelling story there. But there is, especially if it's the first Corolla that's going to support CarPlay and Android Auto. I mean, Toyota has been rolling that out slowly across its different models, but the, at, at some point, we're going to get all of them that, that are going to have both of those. So the experience inside the cabin is ultimately what's selling the car for the most part. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, Cadillac with the Escalade, the new Escalade that's coming out, the 2021 model, it's a 38 inch OLED display inside. Oof. Uh, <laughs> and it's yeah, it stretches all the way from you know where the digital cluster is behind the steering wheel all the way to the middle of of the dash. It's huge. Um, it's curved as well, so it's a very interesting design in that they they went with a curved display, but it looks pretty good. I saw it yesterday, uh, and it wasn't. I couldn't see all the features and functions, but it looked pretty interesting, and it was kind of similar to what Mercedes Benz has done also because they've done a similar thing. It wasn't curved. But they went with a sort of a unified display. 
across from the digital cluster over to the main infotainment screen. It's interesting to me, Ted, now that, um, and I like it, that there's kind of a couple standards out now. There's the Apple CarPlay uh, or the Android Auto. Are, are car manufacturers able to really differentiate themselves anymore when it comes to infotainment because they're using the two standards? Yeah. So I had written an article in the Globe and Mail about this, about how the big tech I guys... Just like, drops the, you know, oh, I wrote an article in the Globe and Mail. Well, oh, you're fancy, it, Ted. Okay, we get it. <laughs> It's true, I did. Uh, and 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 I looked at how big tech was, uh, you know, sort of offering a way for consumers to experience what they normally experience on their phones and and devices in the car. The automakers could not keep up with the pace that mobile's at. They never could. I, I had I had written about that years ago. So now they've sort of seeded all that to the likes of Apple and Google. Now, where I think it's interesting is will they go 100% of the way? Because the next stage after this is for it to be built into the car. Yeah, We've seen an example of that with Porsche, with Apple Music being built into the new Taycan all-electric sports car. And I think sooner or later, probably in the next two years, we're going to start to see some form of Android Auto. They'll call it Android Automotive. I mean, that's what, that's what Google is calling it now. Um, and then Apple may have a different name for it. But either way, it's going to be built into the car. And I suspect the automakers will try to leverage those platforms to maybe, I don't know, sell their own services or features. Like maybe, hey, you can pay for stuff in the car. Like maybe there'll be partnerships with uh, credit card companies. I've seen stuff like that before from Visa. So I, I think we'll, you know, Alexa in the car too. Like I think we're going to start to see an integration of these things that will kind of piggyback off these platforms in some way. I also think, too, that a lot of these uh, car manufacturers have an opportunity to create an app that is native to CarPlay or Android Auto that gives you more functionality with your car using that same platform without having to have a a dedicated cluster for that. I mean, obviously, when you want to just like adjust your air conditioning, you want to be able to just turn a knob. But sometimes I've seen very convoluted clusters where you'll actually have a non-touchscreen CarPlay, but then you'll have some kind of joystick or yeah, rotary rod. dial. Yeah. Uh, so it gives you some more interaction, but I could also see being able to, you know, adjust the rear, uh, you know, in, in the minivan, for example, program what your kids are watching from this specialized app from GM or whomever that appears in that same interface. Yeah, so you're touching on two things that are kind of related. So one is usability and the other is personalization. So the automakers are, are generally trying to to tackle both at the same time. So, for example, with the next-gen sync that Ford was showing, they had a personalization element where you can kind of, like each driver, you know, each person driving the car had a profile. So that would include, you know, how they wanted the layout to look, uh, what, you know, maybe they prioritized certain apps, things like that. Uh, what I saw was obviously not a final version, so I don't know ultimately what else it's going to include. On the usability side, you have certain automakers. The German automakers are very big on this, and you have some of the Japanese ones that are big on it too, which is, hey, we don't want you touching that screen at all. So we want the input to be physical, whether it be with a rotary dial, a trackpad, something that is kind of accessible naturally and ergonomically as you're sitting in the driver's seat, but that you're not reaching to the screen. So they purposely moved the screen further back. So they made it bigger, but moved it further back on the dash in order to dissuade people from actually reaching there. Ted, that drove me crazy. You and I were in Europe, and we rented a Mercedes. 
Yes. Remember? A Mercedes yeah. wagon. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, we're super rich. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're stupid. That <laughs> uh, was a good deal. Um, but it had Apple CarPlay. Thank God, because we drove all over the place and it was a yeah. godsend. But I had to use uh, physical buttons to, to navigate it. And it drove yeah. me, it drove me I, crazy. I remember... Yeah, I remember for you, it was a bit of a, a learning curve and a challenge. I remember when I drove, I, I was so used to it because I had tested Mercedes for years uh, with their Again, you know, different, Ted. <laughs> different iterations of their infotainment system. So I knew, but also because it was similar in, in other ways to BMWs and Volkswagens. So there, there were similarities there. Now, what's interesting is that BMW and Volkswagen have also enabled touchscreens. So it's not like they moved away from it completely. They actually moved f- closer towards the touchscreen, whereas some, you know, someone like Mazda, for example, said, hey, you know what? We don't want anybody touching the screen at all, so we're just not going to make it touch-enabled. Um, Acura looked to do the same thing as well. And so it, it's just interesting the way that different, different brands are approaching this, but ultimately I think it'll come down to just consumer choice. We're talking with Ted Kritsonos. He's uh, one of our favorite tech journalists out of uh, Toronto, one of the fanciest ones we know as uh, well. Ted, uh, I want to thank you for uh, filling us in on uh, all the new car technology from the Toronto uh, Auto Show. Always a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. When we come back from the break, more tech to talk here on Get Connected. Stay tuned. You're back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. Let's talk YouTube. This is an entire business category now there are people that have large followings online that uh, not only make thousands of dollars some even make millions of dollars and it all comes down to how many subscribers you get and what type of content you're doing obviously i guess ad friendly yes content we have our own youtube channel here for get connected and just to give you an idea this is something that we're looking at growing now because TV is dying. <laughs> uh, how many? Do we have about 36,000? 36, 36 or 37. I haven't yeah. checked as of today. And so we do it to post all our content up there so we get uh, wider exposure. But uh, we're going to more and more so look at it as a, a revenue source yes. for the, the brand. Uh, right now, roughly how much are we generating a month? It depends because it depends on the products and features that we do goes up and down a little bit but roughly about a thousand dollars we need to make more so we can yes. pay just for you alone john yes <laughs> well we wanted to talk to some uh youtubers out there uh on how they did did it uh how they created their own youtube channel and built that up and uh, hopefully are making a bit of money uh with it and i think a lot of times when you think of youtubers i think of these crazy young youtubers the punks the punks as i call them but you know is there an opportunity at any age to create a following online well we've uh, got a great guest uh, and it is proof that uh, uh you can make it on youtube uh with you know most types of content especially if uh it's a passion of yours his name's chuck hellebuck he has a youtube channel called filament friday and it's all based around 3d printing which john i know is near and dear to your heart Right. I met Chuck a few years ago at the New York Maker Fair, uh, and uh, he was a, f- a friend of Joel's, uh, Joel Tellings, who we've talked about before, who's also on YouTube as well and made a living from it. Um, but Chuck has a really interesting story, I think, and a very relatable story for for just about anybody where he tried it and, you know, he kind of got to a plateau 
and then he revisited it, and then he's had a really great sort of run uh, as of late. And uh, I thought it'd be really great to have Chuck on to sort of tell that story and what he's doing and how how YouTube has sort of been uh, pivotal in that. On the line, we've got Chuck Hellebuck, the man behind Filament Friday, the YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us, Chuck. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Chuck, uh, maybe you can tell our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself, uh, how old you are, and uh, how you, you got into this. Okay, yeah, it, uh, I'm 58 years old, so I'm not a youngster by any means, but uh, not too old to play around, have some fun. Uh, I got into this because I've always been involved in technology. I've written 10 books on electronics, which is really my background. I've written hundreds of articles, Nuts and Bolts Magazine, a few others. Uh, but over time, and I've published my own books, but over time you could see that books were fading and um, video was really, you know, the direction it was going. So about five years ago, I had a YouTube channel, but about five years ago I started really focusing on it. And I wanted to do electronic, electronic design, which is, it's really Chuck Hullabuck's electronic products. CHEP is the, the channel and Filament Friday was one part of it. Um, so I started doing 3D printing just as a sideline to the electronics and that took off. And I was having a lot of fun with it. So I said, hey, I'll just keep doing videos on this, showing people how to get started, how to do things. And that's really how the channel started. I actually started about the same time as Joel Telling, who you, who you mentioned. Yeah. Um, we started about the same time. And then Joel left me in his, Joel left me in his dust and, you know, and took off. <laughs> he left everybody in his, in our, in his dust. <laughs> yeah. uh, Joel and I are good friends. Yeah. You know, we, get, we, we talk all the time. Um, but yeah, I, as you mentioned, I reached a plateau. What had happened is I, I was doing, I grew pretty quick early on, but then uh, I started focusing on things that I like to do, and I was just designing 3D prints, fixing things around the house, and um, really having a lot of fun with it. But I had a certain number of subscribers and views. Views are where the money is, right? It's subscribers are nice, but views are where the money is. And it's not just about the money, but you want people to watch. And uh, so... I reached a point, I was about four years into it, and I was barely crawling to 25,000 subscribers. Uh, the views were about two to 3,000 consistently, and I just couldn't get out of that rut. And I had to kind of sit down and, you know, really go through everything and, and admit that uh, maybe I was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> you looked inwardly. <laughs> well, I, I had to. I talked to and listened to a lot of the experts out there, the Tim Schmoyers and uh, Daryl Evans and these guys. They tell you a lot of good advice, but it's like you know your better uh, subscribe or better um, thumbnails and keywords and all these different things. I tried all that. I tried all the different things they they said to do, and you know I really didn't see a difference. And I just kind of said, you know, where is this going? Should I just kind of, kind of give up? Is it a young man's game or, you know, a young woman's game? And then and, and say that's it. Or I was like, no, I still have the passion for this. I still have a dedicated following. I had Patreon supporters um, who were following me. I, you know, two to 3,000 consistently watching. So about a month prior to this point, I had released a video where I fixed one of my 3D printers. It had a unique clog, and I just fixed it, threw it up there, and I did two things that were unique about that. One is I was showing people how to fix a problem, not what I could do with a 3D printer. And two, I put in there the Amazon links to the parts that I actually used on, on this uh, fix. And then I forgot about it. And so it's like 30 days later, I'm sitting there looking at this crawling to 25,000. And I said, hey, you know what? I get, well, I got an email from a guy saying, I can't... Uh, 
I can't find those couplings that you had in that video. So I go, it's right there in the description, the link's there. He goes, no, they're out of stock. <laughs> so so long story short, I went and checked, and I had sold quite a few of these couplings, <laughs> and the video had gotten 10,000 views. And I was like, whoa, I didn't even really notice it. I was so lost in, you know, the overall picture. I missed the trees from the forest, right? And, and so it occurred to me that that's what my success was early, helping people. This video was helping people. And so I started doing a real deep dive search of what help people want. And there was two areas what I could see was help. One was a low-cost printer under three had come out, and it needed work. I had one. I wasn't super impressed, but it was it, it was uh, something that needed work. And it was a sub-$200 3D printer, which a large part of the YouTube audience is you know 20 to 30 years old. That's the kind of money they've got. They're going to buy that type of printer. The other thing is I did a poll around my channel is which type of software slicer do you use to convert your 3D prints into the G-code that you actually put in the printer. And overwhelmingly, it was Cura Slicer, which I wasn't using. So I, I searched on both those, Ender3 and Cura, and found out there wasn't a lot of help out there. Mm -hmm. So I started making videos on those two topics using my experience of the past four years, and like overnight, the channel just started to grow i will admit i used one of your videos to fix one of my problems with my ender 3 and it worked it did yeah it didn't blow it up no okay no 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 it's just <laughs> there's it, a success uh, story right there chuck <laughs> well it's always and, helpful and, to have someone else walk you through it especially if you've never done it before yourself and that's really the sort of the the, the, the amazing part of youtube is you can see someone as long as they can capture it well because i always find that some people leave out important steps it's like, well, how did you get from, you know, step four to step five? There's, there's a step four and a half that's missing. Exactly. We're talking with Chuck Hellebuck. He is the uh, man behind uh, a successful YouTube channel uh, called uh, Chuck Hellebuck's uh, Filament Friday or CHEP. Electronic Products. Exactly. Okay. And uh, we're going to have to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk more about uh, how he became successful with that channel and maybe some tips uh, for other people out there that are passionate about some of the things they're doing in their life that they could potentially turn into a YouTube channel. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. We'll be back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Uh, Mike and John here. We're talking about YouTube and how you can potentially start your own YouTube channel and hopefully make it successful. we got Chuck Hellebuck on the line. He is the man behind uh, a pretty cool YouTube channel if you're into 3D printing and fixing 3D printers and, and what have you. Chuck Hellebuck's Filament Friday. In case you yep. recognize his last name, he is the father of the goalie for the Winnipeg Jets. Oh, we had to get that out there. Well, because everyone <laughs> will ask. It's a pretty unique name, I think. Does he like 3D That's printers, Chuck? Oh, uh, no, he lets me do all his 3D printing. Okay. <laughs> he, needs, he needs something. Say, Dad, can you print this for me? <laughs> so, Chuck, obviously, uh, this is something that uh, you were uh, proficient in, uh, you know, electronics and, and 3D printing. There's so many of our listeners out there that have all sorts of different types of, of talents. Is there any advice you could give to them on starting up a YouTube channel and, and building up uh, subscribers and views? Yeah, the biggest thing is, is follow, follow, they follow your passion. Um, and there's a lot of truth to that. But the biggest thing is it's not just your passion. It's what the audience's passion. And that's what you can't forget. As you're making something, you may be a passion about doing something and showing it off. But what is the audience? What are they gaining from that? And that's what I was – that's where I changed. I went from what I was doing, what I loved and some people loved, 
to what a lot of people loved. And it's really the topics that you choose. All the keywords and thumbnails and all that really, to me, are just like 10% of the success. 90% of it is the topics that you choose and then how well you deliver it. And it takes time to build that delivery. I had the advantage having, like I said, written 10 books. When you write a book and explain to somebody how to build something electronically, you got to explain step by step because they got to visualize that in their, in their mind as they read. So that's what I, that's what turned out to be the advantage for my channel as I was able to do that, show those step by step, which you mentioned as you followed my uh, video to fix something, um, is that became my strength and that's what I recognized and it just, I followed that, that success of helping people get started with what's relatively new, 3D printing, you know. I've been doing it for over five years so some of the stuff is a bit boring for me but at the same point, I try to remember where I stumbled and how I can help. And then a lot take a lot of the feedback, answer those questions, and then turn that into videos. So, so I guess that's the biggest thing is do what your audience requires or needs, and, and you'll probably grow. And I think that's a key point, Chuck, is that you really need to engage with your community to find out what they want, fill their needs, maybe remind them, give them some refreshers every once in a while because you're going to have some new people joining the, the audience. It takes a lot of work just for that stuff, though, doesn't it? Oh, there's so much behind the scene, yeah, and doing that and trying to choose your topics for your videos, um, you know, filming it and editing it and putting it up, which a lot of people talk about. That's really only about half the job. The rest is actually figuring out what's interesting, you know, what will people actually watch. And you can make the best video, but if no one's going to watch it, what difference does it make? So that's that's you know true in television or anywhere else. It's you got to be... You got to choose an interesting topic. So, Chuck, you, you've uh, been into electronics for many years, and at some point, uh, you opened your YouTube channel. And you know, how did you figure out what people wanted to watch? Like you said, it's important. Obviously, you got to be passionate about it, what you're creating. But the most important part is that you're creating something for an audience. Like, how did you figure out what the audience wanted? I mean, there's there's a lot of different avenues, but uh, one Google Trends will give you a key what people are searching for right now. Uh, that's free. You can go out there and get that. You can just search YouTube yourself on certain keywords. Like I, like I said, uh, Ender 3 I knew was a popular printer because I'm passionate about printing. It was popular. I had one. Uh, I had done a poll with people. They said Cura Slicer. So then I started searching on uh, YouTube myself. If I wanted to watch something, there what was out there. There wasn't a whole lot. But yet when I went to Google Trends, it was telling me those were popular topics. Um, so to me, there was a gap there. I do have a software called TubeBuddy, which does do some keyword searching for you. But it's really just a matter of, of like you would do anything else. Do your own investigation like you were a person wanting to do it and then find where the gaps are. And then maybe that's where you want to do a video. We're talking with Chuck Hellebach uh, about his YouTube channel. Uh, that particular one's all about 3D printing. But, I mean, you could really take it down into any subject matter, whether that would uh, how to buy groceries or uh, rose gardening or, or fishing, for that matter. Oh, there's no doubt. In fact, I have a, uh, a MIG welder. I used to stick weld all the time, so I've been using a MIG welder. I was trying to get some tips. I bet you I went through about 15 different YouTube videos, and no one just got to the point. And finally, I found it was an older guy. 
he was obviously experienced and he just went step by step here's some tips for getting started and within like 10 minutes i had learned so much from this guy i go that was a great video and he had a lot of subscribers and a lot of views but it's just it's just something like that he he knew his stuff he knew our beginners were gonna fail and he put it in his video quick to the point answered those questions production value do you need a lot of equipment Oh, that's the biggest. No, <laughs> I do my whole videos, uh, all my videos on an iPad. <laughs> really? I have, it's not even the latest. It's the sec. it's uh, one generation back. Um, but I've done everything on my iPad. I edit an iPad for iMovie. Wow. And then I, I use a snowflake microphone connected to it. So it's connected, not wireless. Um, through a USB to lightning connector. And that the whole channel for five years has been done that way. When people who make YouTube videos and that find out that's how I'm doing it, they're just shocked. They can't tell that that's, you know, that's, that's how I'm doing it. But so I'm convinced, no. I mean, better equipment would give me a little better picture, but it doesn't stop my growth. So Spielberg's not going to be calling anytime soon. <laughs> Certainly not. But <laughs> if he calls, I'll answer. <laughs> We've been talking with Chuck Hellebach. He's uh, got uh, a great uh, YouTube channel called Filament Friday. If you want to learn more about 3D printing, uh, I suggest you check it out. Chuck, thanks for joining us. Yeah, sure. Just if, you, if they need to get a hold of me, it's filamentfriday.com. Take you right to the channel. When we come back from the break, it's our favorite tech of the week. Stay tuned here on Get Connected. Back after this. You're back with Get Connected. It's time for our Tech of the Week pick. And John, what do you got? Well, I got something that's not necessarily a piece of tech, but it's just an interesting uh exploitation thing that I found that feels like something out of Mission Impossible or Mr. Robot, where imagine you have to get some data out of a secure facility, but you're not able to physically take the data out. There's no internet connections or anything like that. Hackers have found a way that using the screen brightness, you can actually transmit data almost like Morse code using the security cameras that are in that room. So imagine being able to transmit data outside of a secure facility just with Morse code by changing the screen brightness. You can't even tell it as a human, but you can tell it, the, the computer can tell from even a low quality um, uh, live video feed, for example. Really? Yeah. That is, so you have to install a program on the computer. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that people are going to do, but it's just yeah. an interesting and kind of scary piece of tech that people have figured out how to do where in places that previously were thought to be completely secure, maybe aren't as secure as they thought. What's this called again? Well, it's just it's just a, a process for using screen brightness. Okay, it's it's not a it's a it's a script that someone has made. Okay, yeah. If you're a spy, yeah, check yeah. it out. Okay, don't forget to hit our website, getconnectedmedia.com. Check out our podcasts and uh, go to the newsletter tab and enter to win our contest, giving away a pair of Bear Dynamic uh, over-the-ear headphones worth a thousand bucks. We'll see you again next time. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.